from Acts 7, 1 to 8, 1, various verses. Stephen, full of grace and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of them who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and others of those from Cilicia and Asia, stood up and argued with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit from which he spoke. Then they secretly instigated some men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. They stirred up the people as well as the elders and the scribes. Then they suddenly confronted him, seized him, and brought him before the council. They set up false witnesses who said, This man never stops saying things against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses handed on to us. When they heard these things, they became enraged and ground their teeth at Stephen. But filled with the Holy Spirit, he gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they covered their ears and with a loud shout all rushed together against him. Then they dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning Stephen, he prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out in a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he died. And Saul approved of their killing him. And together we pray, glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. All right, hello. Nice to see you guys. Um, I'm Joshua. For those of you I haven't met, it's uh, great to connect with you and, and see you. Um, hi to everyone online. Um, I'm uh, one of those folks from uh, the South Island who's um, <laughs> been walking around during winter in a T-shirt, just commenting about how warm it is. And, uh, you know, so I, I feel like I'm pretty tough. Um, but when we first got to Auckland, we, uh, my family and I, we all went down with COVID um, pretty early on. Like, we were here, like, less than two weeks, I think, and we got smashed by it and um, really discovered at that point maybe not so tough. Um, but we were really well loved and cared for by the good people of St. Augustine. So I just want to say that from the outset, we felt really welcomed here. We just moved here at the beginning of the year. And it's so great to be part of this church community. Um, just before we kick off, let's take a moment. I'm going to pray, and then we'll get into it. Lord God, we thank you that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from you. And so we pray that you speak to us afresh this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So are there any sleepwalkers out there? No one else, okay. <laughs> no sleepwalkers, all right. Um, sleepwalking's a really funny habit for one of your friends to have, but it's not such a fun one to have yourself. And I'm one of those unfortunate sleepwalkers. And I remember being a child, uh, being told the story, because I don't really remember it, but I was a sleepwalker and I trundled out of my bedroom, down the hallway, made a beeline for my parents' room. And you know that feeling when you feel like someone's watching you? You just sort of feel eyes on you? My parents woke up with that feeling, which is a creepy way to wake up. 
And there I was, stood in the doorway, staring into the middle distance like a creepy Chucky doll, um, just staring. And mum's like, Josh, Joshy, no response. Josh, Josh. Uh, And then I just, in that moment, stood like this, put my hand in the air like this and said, I just have something to say. And I turned around and I walked out. (laughs) And that's a wonderful family memory. Maybe that's the beginning of kind of like a preaching ministry just early on there, you know, like a prophetic thing. But I just have something to say. And that line sticks with me of just having something to say. And I reckon in the opening chapters of uh, the book of Acts, we see that these first Christians just have something to say. We find this passionate group of followers of Jesus who are bold and courageous, and they are going around proclaiming Jesus is risen. They're so full of the Holy Spirit, they can't help it. They just have something to say. And over the past few weeks here at St. Augustine's, we've been exploring the book of Acts and the series titled Revolution. And this revolution that's taken place as the first followers of Jesus, full of the Spirit, live the way of Jesus boldly and share the message with people around them. They have a lot to say, and they don't hold back. And we find this in today's reading from Acts chapter 6 through to 8. And in these chapters, we hear about Stephen. He is uh, a man who's been called out as a leader to be a deacon, uh, to serve the poor and the needy in Jerusalem. He's described to us in the story as someone full of grace and power. He did great signs and wonders among the people. And what we see in Stephen is a man with something to say. His witness is bold and it's courageous. And it actually turns out that his message causes quite a stir amongst the people. We see in Stephen uh, a, a man with a message, and this message causes a lot of trouble. Stephen's message gets the attention of his friends in the synagogue. And the story unfolds, and Stephen ends up being dragged before the high priest to be grilled with questions, and in the end, to face death by stoning. Stephen is celebrated as the first Christian martyr, the first to give his very life for following Jesus. And here in this moment, in the book of Acts, we discover a thread that runs throughout the entire story of Scripture. We see this theme of opposition to what God is doing. And here particularly, opposition to the revolution that God has brought about through Jesus Christ. This gospel, this good news, isn't encountered as good news by everybody. It's actually, it meets opposition and resistance. This new creation that God is bringing about is bursting forth in the midst of the old. And there's this tension that happens as this unfolds. Paul describes this in Romans 8. He speaks of all creation groaning in labor pains, subject to suffering and decay, but longing to be set free. And so what we discover as we read the first stories uh, of the first followers of Jesus is that their message is met with both joy and wonder and gratitude, and at the same time, with great opposition and hatred and even violence. And yet, this shouldn't be a surprise because the claim that Jesus is Lord is a claim that he's worthy of worship above everything else. It's a claim that 
His story is the truest story at the very heart of what it means to be a human. And this story makes a claim on us. And so this notion that Jesus is Lord will meet opposition by every other claim to lordship, whether political, spiritual, or within ourselves. This is not a surprising part, but actually a dynamic that's part of the inbreaking of God's kingdom. I remember in the first few months of ministry, uh, of ordained ministry, coming to my bishop stressed out, and maybe that's common, um, I don't know, but I was, I was stressed out and I was, uh, you know, there's heaps of conflict going on in the church community I was in, and I was getting lots of pushback on stuff, and she said to me, Joshua, if you aren't getting opposition, if you aren't getting pushback, then you're not doing it right. And I was like, oh, okay. Um, now, right at the outset, let me just clarify something. It's worth saying, if you're getting opposition simply because you're rude to people, you can't relate well, or you're mean-spirited, that's not opposition to the gospel of Jesus. That's opposition to you being a fool. There's kind of a difference. Um, so just worth clarifying that. But there's a lot of truth in what the bishop said that day to me. Because for the first followers of Jesus, it wasn't a walk in the park to share the message of Jesus and to live it out. They faced a lot of opposition. And today around our world, there are Christians still dying for their faith. And in a place where we have a lot of religious freedom by comparison, you know, we sometimes forget this, but there are people just still dying for their faith like Stephen. There are people facing fierce opposition for their religious beliefs. Just a few weeks ago, I recall hearing the story of 50 Nigerian Christians shot in church as they worshipped. There are complex uh, political and religious realities in places like these where serious persecution is a reality for many Christians. So how do we make sense of that? How do we make sense of the story of Stephen? If Jesus came to bring life and flourishing and hope and resurrection, why do many of his first followers face such horrific suffering, such hardship, such struggle? Why do many Christians face persecution today? What I want us to explore this morning as we look at the story of Stephen is this dynamic of opposition to the gospel opposition and suffering in the Christian life, and what posture we might take in terms of uh, when we encounter opposition. In between the moment that Stephen gets dragged before the council and grilled, and his execution, he gets up and he gives a long speech. And we didn't read it all out this morning, um, but it's super insightful in making sense of opposition to the message of Jesus. In this speech, Stephen gives an outline of the story of God coming to rescue the people through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And he chooses stories from the Old Testament to make sense of what's happened and to explain it, to make sense of what God is up to. And the stories that he chooses create a very compelling pattern, one that actually picks up on this theme of opposition to God, opposition to his messengers. Two of the major characters referenced in Stephen's speech are Moses and Joseph. And these two men are called by God to bring deliverance and hope to the people. Joseph was given a dream by God. He was raised up into the uh, Egyptian hierarchy and used to rescue Israel from famine. And yet, at the very beginning of his journey, 
He was despised. He was rejected. He was left for dead. Moses was called by God to lead people out of slavery. And then, you know, when they wander in the desert, the people grumble against him, they complain, they call him out for leading them uh, to nowhere and insisting maybe he got it all wrong. This pattern of God calling people who are then rejected and face opposition has a constant recurrence in the story. We see it in the prophets as well. Stephen highlights all of this in his speech. And it culminates in these bracing words. He says this, you ready? He says this. He says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in hearts and ears, you are forever opposing the Holy Spirit, just as your ancestors used to do. Which of the prophets did your ancestors not persecute? They killed those who foretold the coming of the righteous one, and now you have become his betrayers and murderers. You are the ones that received the law as ordained by angels, and yet you have not kept it. And so this thread running through the story reaches this zenith in this moment in this Oh, here, I'll just grab, oh, hello, I'll just move, here we go, that's fine, It's good, we can cope, there we are. Um, yeah, it reaches its zenith in this moment of the speech, and can you imagine the temperature in the room when he says this stuff? It's intense, and this thread running through the speech is one of God's messengers being rejected time and time again, and Stephen points out that this opposition is this recurrent theme. And so when we wonder why the Christian life can be a struggle, when we wonder why people might suffer for following Jesus, Stephen reminds us it's actually nothing new. And in fact, in a way, it's to be expected. This opposition, though, has some layers to it. And I think it's really helpful to understand the layers of opposition at work. And so I want to talk about three that have really helped me understand and kind of make sense of suffering as we walk in the way of Jesus. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul describes the way in which new creation breaks forth in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. As people move from death to life in Christ, and he says this, you were dead through the trespasses and sins in which you once lived, following the course of this world, following the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work amongst those who are disobedient. All of us once lived among them in the passions of our flesh, following the desires of flesh and senses, and we were by nature children of wrath, like everyone else. But God, who is rich in mercy out of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And so in this theologically rich passage of Paul, he draws out three kinds of opposition. Opposition from the world, opposition from the powers, and opposition from within us. Traditionally, these categories have been known as a struggle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And that sounds far more exciting, doesn't it? Um, The world, the flesh, and the devil. But understanding these, I think, can actually give us some insight into what does it mean to be God's people and to be God's faithful people 
in the midst of opposition. So firstly, Paul speaks of following the course of the world. And the point is that there's a general way of things happening in the world that often work at cross-purposes to what God is doing. This idea isn't referring to the world as in everything God has made, you know, and everything in it, you know, uh, everything in the world. Uh, but actually, rather, structures and realities within the world which are broken and go against the grain of what God is doing. We might think of broken political systems, corrupt governments, unjust structures in society. We might think of cycles of poverty and addiction. The world, in the sense that Paul talks about here, captures the idea of human powers and community that have set themselves against God and his good purposes for creation. This is what Jesus talks about in John 7 when he refers to the world hating him because he testifies that its works are evil. So first of all, we hear Paul talk about the world. Secondly, Paul speaks of opposition from the powers. Now, for us living here in Aotearoa in the 21st century, post-enlightenment, this is probably the element we feel most uncomfortable talking about or unsure about. However, the witness of Scripture clearly points to non-human powers that oppose God's people. Later on in Ephesians, Paul will say, our struggle is not against enemies of blood and flesh, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And so this is a reality when it comes to opposition to the gospel. There are malevolent powers at play. Satan opposes the church and its witness. Now, that could be a topic for another whole sermon, um, one that we could unpack, but it's simply important to acknowledge, actually, this is what Paul names here. And then the third layer of opposition we see Paul name here is opposition within us. Paul talks about us following the desires of our flesh and senses. Now, that's not him giving the body a hard time. Please don't hear that. It's him referring to the selfish and disordered desires of our hearts, those that wreak havoc in our lives. And this is an element of opposition that we have to be honest about. The opposition to what God is doing is not just out there. When we honestly read the Bible, we can't simply put ourselves in Stephen's shoes. We simply can't just read ourselves into that part of the story. But rather, we have to hear his rebuke toward those stiff-necked people as one that might apply to us too. So three elements of opposition we see, the world, the flesh, and the devil, they weave together in these complex ways. And if you want to dive into this topic a bit more, um, I highly recommend a book. Um, There's a book here called Live No Lies by John Mark Comer, and I read it recently, and I found it actually a really good kind of uh, overview and a a really good pricey of this kind of topic. So highly recommend it. But when it comes to facing opposition in our lives as Christians, I actually think we respond to it poorly when we don't understand all these different dynamics, when we fail to acknowledge the complexity of the reality. Let me just give an example or two. Uh, If we fail to acknowledge the opposition to God, to the good news within us, if we fail to acknowledge opposition within us to what God is doing, we can become those self-righteous people 
who are ready to pick up stones and throw them at others. We've probably all seen embarrassing or kind of cringy examples of Christians with bullhorns and placards creating that kind of us versus them dynamic. Seeing the opposition to God in our own hearts will actually give us the humility and the compassion to disagree well, uh, to face opposition well, not to do that uh, kind of uh, us versus them sort of thing. So I think that's really helpful. I think if we fail to acknowledge the spiritual realities too, we might simply think if only we can build the right systems in our churches, uh, if only we do the right things, that we will flourish. We might actually fail to acknowledge God in prayer, acknowledging that there's actually way more going on in the struggles that we encounter than we see at first glance. And so for me, understanding this dynamic is really helpful, seeing the complexity of the situation. But how might we respond when we face opposition? When we find ourselves uh, suffering for following Christ? What's the posture that we see in Stephen's story? Well, as we see the story of Stephen's death, we get a glimpse of just how revolutionary the Christian story really is. We hear this. When they heard these things, they became enraged and ground their teeth at Stephen. But filled with the Holy Spirit, he gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Stephen believes so deeply in the story of Jesus that he gives his very life for it. He trusts in God's victory over the world, the flesh, and the devil. He trusts that God is making all things new through Jesus Christ. And just before he dies, he sees a vision of Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And in this vision, it's significant that Jesus is standing. Usually we hear of Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father. But as Stephen dies, Jesus is on his feet, pleading and praying for him, standing for him. And I think this vision is a beautiful one of Jesus advocating for Stephen. Stephen gets a glimpse here of Jesus as the one true judge and Lord. And that's an important image, so just hold that for a moment. Because moments after this unfolds, Stephen, as he dies, he says, Lord, do not hold the sin against them. He pronounces words of forgiveness as he dies, calling our minds back to that moment where Jesus dies on the cross and utters words of forgiveness. So here there are two pictures at play that we can actually hold together. This image of Jesus standing, standing as judge, and this image of Jesus as crucified, offering words of forgiveness. And I think these two images can be held together as we think about what does it mean for us to face suffering as Christians and to live faithfully in the world. The cross at the very heart of our faith points to a God who enters into suffering and the brokenness of the world and brings forgiveness and who brings healing as well through his death. The cross is this decisive moment where God defeats 
and disarms the powers that stand against uh, God's good plans for his creation. And we live in light of this moment, and we anticipate the final defeat of these powers. Jesus, the judge, also stands on his feet at this moment. That's the other picture we have in mind. And we're reminded here that amidst the suffering, this is not the end of the story. Not for Stephen, not for us. Jesus, the judge, will come to set things right. He will appeal for the broken and the downtrodden. He will do away with all the evil within us and around us that spoils his good creation. And finally, what actually really strikes me about this story is the way that we see God use this moment of evil, this moment of suffering for good. As Stephen dies, we can hear, uh, sorry, we hear that Saul, who will later become the Apostle Paul, he's there watching. He sees the whole thing unfold. And we can only imagine what impact this had on uh, Saul. But we know that he'll turn from being one of the greatest opponents of the gospel to arguably the greatest proponent of it. And so from this moment of persecution in Jerusalem, the first believers scatter and they go out and the good news spreads. And God turns something that is evil into something uh, good. He brings good from it, rather. The first followers of Jesus revolutionized the way that suffering is understood as they practice the way of Jesus, trusting in his judgment and his forgiveness and walking in the way of love. And so for us in all things, I think the invitation is always to trust in, uh, to be reminded to trust in and to follow in the way of Jesus. And Dean Pinter, a pastor and biblical scholar, I think he puts it really well, really beautifully. So I just want to finish with some uh, words from his commentary. He says this, he says, it's important for all of us who continue to read and attend to the book of Acts to view Stephen's prayerful witness as a model. Even if we never face martyrdom, he submitted his life and words to God who is revealed in his son, Jesus. Jesus was the single and ultimate reason for all that Stephen did. And when Stephen died, it was for his saviour, and like his saviour. He served others at table like his saviour, who before him had served others and washed their feet. He lived like his saviour by offering his all on behalf of others, regardless of the opinion of the crowd. He prayed like his saviour by confidently asking God to receive him into his presence at the time of his death. He forgave like his saviour in forgiving those who were killing him. Stephen did not seek martyrdom, it was forced upon him. His words and actions challenged injustice and untruthfulness, and in doing so, the unjust and untruthful pushed back. Stephen's path was the peaceful path of his saviors, but like his savior, this way of living often creates confrontation, and in Stephen's case, a fruitful martyrdom. So may we, like Stephen, have courage to walk in the way of Jesus, knowing that we don't walk by our own strength, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, trusting in the one who suffered for us. Amen.